Hello and welcome to Screen Cleaning, the show here on BYU Radio that is all about shining a spot on a spotlight on all that is good in entertainment. I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Colt Wissinger, and we've got two good movies to talk about today. I they're so good, Cole. I mean, if if we wanted to use a sports term here, I think we might even mention a Hall of Fame. Yeah, this is our second edition of the Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame. I'm so glad to bring that little sound effect back. <laughs> it's it's regal. It's we're truly uh, making a thing that these are the best of the best, the cream of the crop. Movies we we'll want to take a little more time to talk about. And I will say that even though these are in the Hall of Fame, they're not necessarily movies that you would think that is the greatest movie ever made, right? But for some reason, they're significant to me. They're significant to you. And uh, so we want to, yeah, like you said, take some extra time talking about it. And them. we try to make sure that they're not the movies we mention every single day. I think it's an assumption on screen cleaning that The Princess Bride or The Dark Knight would also be in the Hall of Fame. Sure. But we talk about them every chance we get. These are ones we that, that we love that we haven't had an excuse to gush over. And so we made a whole show just to do that. And if you want to look up our past Hall of Fame episode... You can download the podcast, just Google Screen Cleaning Podcast, and you'll have access to all of our past shows. Now, over 100 recorded episodes on the podcast that you can access. It's like 102, but over 100 sounds really cool. Well, I mean, but then, you know, we used to be on the Matt Townsend show, and so we had episodes there, too. We've been at this for a while. Those have been lost to, uh, lost in the, the annals of... The Library of Alexandria just sunk go. into the sands and yeah. Yeah. Something. Um, but on the last Hall of Fame episode that we had, I selected Lars and the Real Girl. And mine was Spider-Man 2, the Sam Raimi one, not Amazing Spider-Man 2 or Spider-Man Far From Home, the MCU Spider-Man 2, Sp- the official Spider-Man 2. And mine was Lars and the Real Girl, the one starring Ryan Gosling. As opposed to <laughs> the other Lars. The other the one. Yeah, yeah, right. And this time, those ones seemed a little bit random when you put them together, right? Spider-Man 2, Lars and the Real Girl. But I would think that we've got a pretty strong through line between the two films that we're going to talk about today. I think they're both about hope, rooting for the underdog, and they just leave you with a warm, fuzzy feeling. And that's really what we need right now in this day and age. So with no further ado, Jeff, your first selection in today's Hall of Fame is Dave, starring Kevin Klein from 1993. And we're going to talk about Dave first. Mine will be, in about 20 minutes, we'll be talking about Babe from 1995. All right. Two solid films. Well, I could tell you about the plot of this film, but there's a, a short trailer that I want to play that really sums it up quite well. Hail to the chief, he's the one we all say hail to. Dave Kovic was an ordinary guy. Mr. Kovic, your government needs your help. We just happened to look like the president. You're a very handsome man. Thank you, Mr. President. Just get rid of the grin. You look like a schmuck. Dave. Something has happened to the president. What about the vice president? The vice president is mentally unbalanced. Is this legal? Oh, yeah. Probably. We think so. Yes. (laughs) 
So you've got this guy who just happens to look a lot like the president. Something happens to the president. And so they ask this ordinary guy who happens to be the owner of a temp agency to and step in. And a part-time in. presidential impersonator. Like, he knows what he's got. Right. The, one of the first few scenes of the film, you see him riding a pig up onto this platform to advertise for this used car uh, dealership. And uh, it's it's quite funny. A, lo- a mother and her daughter are in the audience and the little girl's like, Mom, is that really the president? And she says, I sure hope not. Right, right. I would, little I would, would hope, she know. I would hope that our president would not be hawking used cars. Uh, I want to talk about that little girl here in just a minute. But the voices that you heard in that trailer were Kevin Dunn and uh, Frank Langella who are quite good in this film, as is everybody else. And then you also heard the voice of Kevin Klein and, of course, Kevin Klein As Dave and the president. That's right. So I love the premise of this film because in the, in the 90s, it kind of seems just like a bonkers plot for a movie. But if you go back to maybe the 1930s, it actually actually doesn't seem like it would be that out of a play, out of place in the 1930s and it made me think a little bit about the film Mr. Deed Comes to Town starring Gary Cooper and I thought Kevin Klein does such a great job in this movie who could possibly play Dave Kovic and if this movie existed in the 1930s, I guarantee you Gary Cooper would have played Dave Kovic in this role. It's interesting because the inspiring and political nature of this movie made me think of a 1939 film just a couple of years later, also starring with Mr. But it's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Although I can't I can't envision Jimmy Stewart playing a bad guy. And Kevin Klein kind of has to play the good guy and a bad guy in yeah. this film. The president that he's replacing isn't exactly the most honest and upright public servant that the United States has ever seen. What? Corruption in politics? <gasps> <laughs> Sorry to burst your bubble. <laughs> and that is actually a theme that that comes up later in the film. I mean, the very the very fact that these two advisors, one of them is the chief of staff, and uh, one of them is a, a speechwriter, and I'm not exactly sure what what else. Like his the role communications is. director, basically. There we go. He, uh, they hatch up this scheme after the president suffers a pretty serious stroke that leaves him totally incapacitated, which would put into place uh, the vice president as the acting president of the United States. But these other two gentlemen have their own agenda. Frank Langella, believe it or not, the villain of the film, has uh, plans on becoming the next president. And so they use poor Dave Kovic as this puppet. And uh, his transformation in this film as this guy that is somebody else's pulling the strings to the one pulling the strings is just a delight to see. And you see Dave Kovic start making some changes in policy that are really quite inspiring and that you you sit there and you think, yeah, why aren't we taking away money from that organization so that, you know, we don't who cares if Americans feel better about their cars and why are we paying these contractors that are late doing their work? You know, so it makes and I I guarantee you what's presented in the film is an oversimplification of how government works, yeah, right? I don't imagine a part-time impersonator, part-time temp agency guy would be able to read 
anything into the giant amounts of policy to be able to find something as simple as that. But he did have some help from his friendly neighborhood accountant. Played by Charles Grodin. Yeah. But again, even between the two of the, you know, putting those two heads together, yeah, I don't think so. Char- Charles Grodin, it, when I watched this, because I watched it for the first time this week, I'm so glad for the recommendation. He played the only sane man in this whole movie <laughs> because as he's driving away from the White House after, you know, digging through the budget with Dave, he says, get out while you can. Like, yeah, if yeah. you actually found out that one of your good friends was impersonating the president, like, that's a jail time. There's no oh, way they can get sure. out of that, right? So, yeah, but, you know, and we'll talk about this as we continue to have this deep dive into Dave, but the movie is so charming and the the characters in it are so likable that you completely forget about how ludicrous this entire it's thing true. is. At right? the beginning, it got me for a second. I was like, wait, are we really, is this what we're doing? But yeah. then as the movie goes on, you're right. It You just kind of buy into what they're selling and it plays it straight enough that you forget that it started from such a weird place. And I realized watching this why sometimes I confuse Groundhog Day for being an 80s movie because A, it's Bill Murray and I think of Ghostbusters and that happened in the 80s. But also I just picture all of these big high concept kind of movies to be lumped in that decade because – I mean, this this is your classic elevator pitch. You know, you only have five seconds to impress an executive and you say, hey, what if there's this guy that looks exactly like the president? The president has a stroke and so he has to take over for like a week. And what would some ordinary guy do as the president? Like, it's just that big idea. And the 80s and apparently early 90s were just chuck full of these kind of movies. This plays it off really, really well. It's presented in a way and it's so well written um, and it's casted so well that it seems plausible, right? You just totally forget about this would never happen. Now, cutting the budget for sure, that that scene is, is completely ridiculous. But it is inspiring in its own way, right? There were a couple of other scenes that I thought, no way, that would never happen, right? I mean, the plot itself, you have the president becoming incapacitated, and so somebody else comes in to take over, Right. Um, I in the trivia for this film, if you look it up, um, something like this actually happened, right? So this uh, this kind of happened when Woodrow Wilson was serving his second term. He suffered a stroke that left him semi paralyzed, and uh, he could not serve as the president. And this is before they had come up with the Twenty Fifth Amendment, which you know, says, oh, if the president is incapacitated, then the vice president becomes the president, right? So instead of Woodrow Wilson resigning and just passing it over to his vice president, who was Thomas R. Marshall, if you didn't know, this this bit of trivia says that, uh, that uh, his illness was kept a secret and that his second wife, Edith, started running the executive branch and uh, the U.S. government in his place. <laughs> Which seems really progressive for that time period, 1919. And the idea of Franklin Jella uh, kind of puts forward is, oh, the country needs a strong front, right? And so we don't want it to seem like the president is incapacitated. They sort of did the same thing with FDR, right? They kind of hid the fact that he had polio and like he was always sitting down but they disguised it and they made it seem like he was sitting down just because he wanted to sit down and not that he was in a wheelchair. Sure. 
which is not the worst of points, right? Yeah. Like you do want to have confidence in your president. You do want to feel safe, right? Yeah. Um, the, <laughs> you just don't want some random impersonator from the street all of a sudden taking over the country. Well, unless he's Dave Kovic. Unless he's and then, a good guy. Yeah, unless yeah. he's a really good guy like that. The other part that I thought was totally unbelievable, and then I looked it up, and sure enough, it's a real thing. And not only is it a real thing, but every president, with the exception of Donald Trump, uh, since I want to say Taft, has done this. And that is to throw out the first pitch. At a baseball game. Oh. I just I, I see the president of the United States on the pitcher's mound and I think, wait a minute, you're going to have the president up there without his security detail, just totally exposed to dozens of thousands of people. Right. Tens of I guess tens of thousands of people is a better way to say that. Yes. But uh, yeah, it's a real thing. Every pre- and multiple times, Cole. Well, to me, one of the great moments in American history in my opinion, is when President George W. Bush came out onto the mound at Yankee Stadium shortly after 9-11, right? Yeah. And the country had one of those, like, coming together. And and uh, in the movie, Dave delivers, like, a surprising strike. President Bush had it right down the middle whenever he threw that. It was a decent pitch. Well, he had that he had that connection with the Texas Rangers, That's too. Right. So he had exposure. Guy. But anyway, um, you would think that a, as big of a baseball fan as I am, I would have known that. And I was totally shocked to find out that, yeah, it's totally a thing. It happens all the time. Um, so that check off another box of seems implausible, but totally happens, right? Let's talk about Kevin Klein. Um, he wasn't the original person slated for this role because, you know, you're thinking high concept movie. We need to make as much money back as we can. Let's put in this big box office star. Right. So they were thinking Warren Beatty. They were thinking Kevin Costner, which, by the way, Warren Beatty was an interesting one, because one of the movies this reminded me of as watch as I was watching it was Heaven Can Wait, because Warren Beatty is trying to like impersonate someone else. And it it's sort of believable that all of a sudden that person had a big personality change, but it's because someone entirely different is doing those things. Yeah. And Charles Grodin also in that movie, Heaven Can Wait. So Kevin Klein is such an inspired choice for this film because he's really good at playing the jerk when he needs to be the the president of the United States. But he's also really good at playing a decent, kind guy that you just really root for. And he's so likable. And he's he's the owner of a temp agency. And so you can really see him in this role as somebody that doesn't feel successful until he's found somebody a job. Right. And he the feeling that he gets finding somebody a job. And it's like, yeah, that's the kind of president we want where they they can't sleep at night until they've spent hours and all of these resources trying to save six hundred fifty million dollars so that uh, these homeless shelters can get the funding that they need. Right. Right. That's it's so inspiring. And he's so great in it. There are so many of these lines that he delivers in the film that you just have to I mean, you have to believe that he improvises, right? And his reactions are so genuine. There are several moments in the film when he's caught off guard. Uh, For instance, at the beginning of the film, when the Secret Service just happens to be waiting for him in his house (laughs) while he's breaking out into Oklahoma. Oklahoma. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, he's just so great in this film. The casting 
all the way down the line is just fantastic. Klein, yeah, Klein's performance, I got a little taste of Robin Williams at times. Whenever oh, yeah. he would go into like just jokey impersonations and when he does his slightly deeper presidential voice as yeah. opposed to normal Kevin Klein talking, it, he went back and forth and his facial expressions are amazing. Really, I could not imagine anyone else. This, this is one of the only Kevin Klein movies I've ever seen, but I couldn't imagine anyone else doing Dave. Right. Sigourney Weaver is also fantastic as the first lady. She's sporting her fresh off of Aliens 3 do. The hair's finally starting to grow back. And uh, she's just really good at being stern and fed up with her husband's, who, who she thinks is her husband's shenanigans, right? And then as she starts to see some of the inspiring and important changes that Dave Kovic is making as the president... She really starts to warm up to him. She doesn't buy that he's the president, and that comes into play later. And they just play really well off of each other, whether or not uh, they like each other or whether or not they don't like each other. Frank Langella, ooh, he is good as a villain. Just that tall, commanding presence that he has and that terrifying voice. Like, he's got those eyes that when he stares at you, it's just you get the chills down your spine. And uh, he's such a great villain in this. Um, even the cameos in this film and even the the kid casting, the, the, the kids that were cast in this film do a fantastic job. That, that little girl that you referenced at the beginning, that was the director's daughter. And uh, the director, who we'll talk about here in just a second, has a knack for casting his children in films. He had um, a son that showed up in this movie as well. Sure, sure. Point. Um, one of I think my favorite cameo in the film, though, is Bonnie Hunt, who has one of the best lines in the movie. And that's another part I want to talk about this movie is that there are so many quotable lines. Cole, once you once you see it a few more times, you'll you'll get what I'm talking about. But the line that she has, she is the uh, the White House tour guide. And she's trying to get these people to follow her, but also remain friendly. And so she'll say, we're walking, we're walking, and we're stopping. And we quoted that all the time growing up. And there are other really funny lines when um, Kevin Klein is out on the balcony waving to people. And those two gentlemen that we talked about, Frank Langella and Kevin Dunn, are whispering what he should say behind them. And there's some miscommunication, and what he hears is, Go. And then he hears another one say, go. And then he hears another one say, go. And he says, go, go, go. And it's this awkward, funny moment. They just were really telling him to go. The scene right before that is one where Kevin Klein's interacting with Sigourney Weaver. All you have to say is, thanks for doing this, Ellen. Thanks for doing this, Ellen. Exactly. <laughs> As he's training, like, to fool what's supposed to be his wife, they're kind of giving him pointers. Yeah. There's another scene where he is at a factory and he puts his arms in these uh, mechanical arms that will mimic what his arms do. And so the arms have this really wide reach. And so he puts out his arms and he says, I once, I once caught a fish this big. <laughs> and then we also used to quote the interchange between uh, – Dave Kovic and his bodyguard, the head of his security, played by Ving Rames, who is also very good at being stern in this film. And he said, oh, uh, you know, has the was the president's relationship with his wife always like this? And he says, I can't say uh, you don't know or, or you can't say 
I can't say. <laughs> we used to quote that all the time, too. Um, let's talk about the director, Ivan Reitman. Ivan Reitman. Fresh off of the success of Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2, also starring in both of those cases, Sigourney Weaver. And, yeah, he uses his daughter in a cameo. He uses his son. He also uses... Future director Jason Reitman. Jason Reitman, who also, uh, uh, yeah, who tells off the Ghostbusters in Ghostbusters 2 uh, in a cameo there, too. But this is one of his better films. I think, in my mind, this is kind of where Ivan Reitman's career peaked, is Dave and... I don't know. This may be my favorite Ivan Reitman movie, even more Ooh. so than Ghostbusters. Um, it's just so charming. The writer of this film is Gary Ross, who actually worked on a few political campaigns. He worked on Ted Kennedy's presidential campaign, and he consulted on both Michael Dukakis's presidential campaign and Bill Clinton's presidential campaign. There's a winner. Yeah, and so... Obviously, somebody that has hung around with politicians and knows kind of a lot of the ins and outs of of politics. And it really shows in this movie. There are lots of scenes in this movie where you get to see real life politicians and real life uh, reporters and people that are are critics of of politics. And I also read and and it, it shows in the movie, too, that Ivan Reitman kind of just would let these real-life politicians in on what the the essence of the scene is about, and then he would just say, do your thing. So that scene with the McLaughlin group, where they're yeah. kind of sitting around having that uh, that roundtable chat, that was just improvised based on what he told them the scene needed to have. Larry King also shows up. Oh, yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. So Gary Ross, not only was he into politics before he started doing screenwriting, Cole, he wrote... The, the uh, screenplay for Big. Uh, he hung around this uh, movie set because he was also interested in directing. So he wrote and directed Pleasantville. He wrote and directed Sea Biscuit. Whoa. And, uh, and then he went on to do The Hunger Games and Ocean's 8. So I can't really reconcile <laughs> those. But uh, yeah, somebody that has four Academy Award nominations under his belt. And this was his first one. And boy, was it deserved because the screenplay is just so charming. And again, it's presented in a way that even though it's so ridiculous, it seems like it could happen. Right, Cole? Um, I got to say, though, that Kevin Klein as Dave Kovic pretending to be the president of the United States, it's so inspiring and so heartwarming that he would certainly be in contention as one of the greatest movie presidents we've ever had or will ever had. And gosh, I really hope that we can have more movie presidents and even real-life presidents as good as Dave Kovac was in the movie Dave. Yeah. As we did last time on the Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame... You're just going to play that as much as you can. Every chance right? I okay. get. Right. I also bring a couple of my favorite quotes after rewatching or watching these movies. And so I have a few written down. We already uh, played a little piece from Thanks for Doing This, Ellen. Uh, but there was also a, v- a voiceover that says the president continues to be briefed on matters of national importance. And you flash to Frank Langella and Kevin Dodd, like teaching him what Congress is and how there are two <laughs> branches there's the House and there's the Senate. And- yeah. 
that's the matter of national importance. Um, a cop pulls him and Sigourney Weaver over um, when they're trying to like run away for a little bit, but they end up going back and they pretend to be impersonators, even though she's <laughs> actually her and he isn't actually him. And the cop kind of pats him on the back and says, you're very good at this, but she needs a lot of work. And Dave <laughs> says, yeah, she's new at this. <laughs> and then the other cop, by the way. Uh, is Gary Ross, the screenwriter. There you go. And yeah. yeah, he likes that cameo. And then finally, this, the serious quote, really, of the movie belongs to Ving Rhames. Take care. Dave? Yeah. I would have taken a bullet for you. Colin back to a scene that they had in the kitchen earlier on when he's explaining what the Secret Service does. And and Dave asks, like, wait, so are you supposed to take a bullet for me? And Ving Rhames doesn't really have an answer at the time because mm. he's not really the president. And then that's your big emotional climax. Like, they've yeah. gotten to know each other. They're friends. And Dave is a good guy. And he'd take a bullet for Oh, him. and that, that final shot that has Ving Rhames in it is just so satisfying. And it will put a smile on your face. Uh, if you haven't seen Dave already, you've got to watch it. There were a couple of moments where my kids came in that I wish they hadn't uh, or that I could have fast-forwarded. So just be aware of that. It is PG-13. There isn't a ton of language in it, though. Just a couple of of uh, sexual situations that, that need to be uh, fast-forwarded if you've got little ones in the room. It's also a bit of a rom-com, right? Dave yeah. and Sigourney Weaver kind of fall in love. Yeah. And uh, so for all those reasons, you got to watch Dave. And when we return here on Screen Cleaning, Cole Wissinger is going to tell us why we need to go back and watch the 1995 film Babe. That's up next on Screen Cleaning. This is a tale about an unprejudiced heart and how it changed our valley forever. There was a time not so long ago when pigs were afforded no respect except by other pigs. They lived their whole lives in a cruel and sunless world. But that all changed when Babe came to the farm and changed the world with his beautiful way of seeing the world. This is Screen Cleaning. My name's Cole Wissinger, and that's... And I'm Jeff Simpson. Jeff Simpson. <laughs> and we're giving a little bit more time today to a couple of our favorite movies. We've talked about Dave, and now it's time to induct Babe into our Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame. It's a solid pick, Cole. I think we all could use a little more babe in our lives. This week, as I was preparing to talk about what it is about this movie that I love so dearly, I came around to, to a, a comparison to another movie. And I think I can put this in terms that you can understand. The way that you talk about Paddington and Paddington 2 is exactly the way I feel about Babe yeah. from the visual design of being like Wes Anderson light to be to having this main character that is not human, but is treated with respect from the humans around that has just this beautiful outlook on life that changes people. Babe is my Paddington. And I truly it's one of my favorite movies of all time. 
This was a big sensation when it came out, Cole. It made a ton of money. It was nominated for Best Picture back when only five movies every year were nominated for Best Picture. And right in the middle of that era where it seemed like there was an Oscars strategy and it had to be a biopic with some actor taking a serious turn and going for that Oscar. And, and then you just get Babe showing up there in 1995. How many other G-rated movies get nominated for Best Picture? Yeah, and we talk about like movies earning their rating all the time, whether it's PG-13 slipping that one you know, bad word that they can get. This earns its G. It is the most sincere, like innocuous, like good for absolutely everyone kind of movie. Yeah, and even as a 12-year-old, you would think this, this movie would would be a little too underneath me, you know. It's it's probably about the age when I felt like, I need to be watching older movies, right? Um, No, it doesn't matter how old you are. When you watch this movie, it wins you over. It was honestly one of the biggest movie surprises and pleasures of my life when I revisited this as an adult and realized I like it even more than when I was a kid because I was like three or four years old when this came out so Babe was always just a part of what I was watching it was one of those standard family kind of movies sure. that we would watch when I was a kid and then when I watched it as an adult I realized how great all of the filmmaking around it was and how wonderful James Cromwell's performance so again going back to Paddington you love Hugh Grant being like this bombastic, overacting kind of character in that. His greatest role. And to me, this is James Cromwell's greatest role where the one person that the 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 animal character has to interact with is much more subdued and quiet and understated in his acting and gravitas. Yeah, the animals speak more than the humans. Absolutely. It's so funny. When James Cromwell picked up the script, he thought it was just going to be an easy little role because he only had like a hundred some lines in the whole thing. Um, And a big chunk of those words were actually the song that he ends up breaking out into in front of Babe. That's a wonderful moment. The music is something uh, I'm definitely going to talk about in a second. And so he thought like, oh, I'm just like a little supporting character. He's the main human. Like he's in a ton of scenes, but he just has to be there and kind of direct traffic with his eyes and and even his wife talks a ton more than he does even though she's on screen less because that's just like the relationship that they have yeah let me ask you this though the the plot of this film is actually pretty similar to another very well-known pig book turned into a movie charlotte's web right where you have this really ordinary pig that you know is presented as actually the pig in this film was a lot more extordinary than the pig in Charlotte's Web. Charlotte's Web, that pig Wilbur doesn't really do anything. He's he has some a, pig. He's got a spider that saves his his little piggy hide. Yeah, right. Charlotte's the main character. Right, but it's a it's a similar theme where you've got this pig that is presented as doing these extraordinary things, which spares him from the butcher's block. Right. So which one do you like better, Cole? Babe by far. So Charlotte's <laughs> Web is just another kid's book and or and then adapted into a movie. Babe has so much more going for it. And so let's talk about like this the Wes Anderson storybook stylings that the way this movie is presented. I'm glad that we're moving on very quickly because you're likely ruffling a lot of pig fur with that statement that it's so much I, better than Charlotte's Web. I do not think there not is mine. a question not mine. that from the standpoint of the two movies – 
Oh, for sure. The movies. Yeah. Although a lot of people do love that animated one. It's just a, <laughs> it, that's just a kid's movie. Babe yeah. is so much more and can be appreciated by adults. I agree. As I've seen in, in my own life. So as we did with yours, before we dive into the plot, let's play a little from the trailer for Babe. I'm not sure if you realize how much the other animals are laughing at you. It's not a duck that thinks it's a rooster, it's a pig that thinks it's a dog. You should accept what he is and be thankful for it. But now he's determined. They're sheep, they're inferior. Oh, no, they're not. To take care of business. All a nice little pig like you need do is ask. His way. Okay, so we're talking about two, like, mid-90s films today, and... All the trailers in that era kind of seem the same. This does not really capture what it is that I love about Babe because it's really what what I started with when you actually hear the voice of that narrator that is in the movie that sets the tone and starts you on your journey where Babe goes from just being this this poor little pig whose mom and, and siblings are taken from him because he was raised kind of in a little butcher's, like a, in a factory, right? One of those that gets pigs ready to be bacon and ham and whatever it is that pigs become. And he's taken to this farm. He goes to the fair and James Cromwell guesses his weight and to win the pig. And he does. And, you know, Babe escapes the chopping block at Christmas time. He, and he's, he gives a, a more accurate weight after Babe has relieved himself a little bit. It's a funny little moment. <laughs> And and so Babe uh, befriends, you know, the ducks and the sheep and the dogs, especially that are on this farm and each of which are voiced wonderfully and, and animated really well, especially for 1995, but not terrible for today either. Jim Henson was involved in like the puppetry that was the Jim Henson company. Yeah. Uh, and even the, the CGI, the subtle little like make the dog's mouth move stuff doesn't it holds up fine it's not noticeably bad yeah yeah and i think you said it that all of the voice performers in this film are just so perfectly cast and they're not uh, they're just they add so much to the movie hugo weaving is one of the, the characters the tough guy rex the dog that is um at first very gruff towards babe because he's not being what a pig should be the theme of this movie is the one that we all have a place right you need to know your place and just do it as what you do and so ferdinand the duck is the first kind of goofy character that we get (laughs) that is a duck that wants to be a chicken uh he wants to get up or a rooster proper and and Cockadoodle do so that and he wake him serves up. a purpose so, so that, that he doesn't put him on the butcher's block, right? Yeah, because he doesn't want to be the roast duck for Christmas. Um, and he, so he's trying to branch out, and he's kind of ridiculous and goofy in the way that he's doing it. But Babe is just this sweet, innocent little pig that doesn't know better. He doesn't know that he's not supposed to go in the house or do the things that dogs are doing or. Um, you know, befriend the sheep as opposed to, you know, the dogs have this very old old school way of viewing like they're the wolves and the sheep are the sheep and you have to scare them into running them around because the ultimate plot of this movie takes Babe into being a sheep pig, a sheep dog, a sheep herder uh, in the national like sheep herding competition and he doesn't do it by growling at him and being mean to him and trying to bite him. He reasons he, with them. He talks to the sheep. Yeah. Yeah, and that that same theme carries over onto the human side too, right? Where James Cromwell is dealing with these very same issues of that's not what a pig should be. I should not be 
leading this pig to, you know, herd these sheep. And I, I think another great theme of this movie, in addition to, you know, don't just don't just fit the mold that everybody else creates for you, but it's also to stand up to opposition and to just be courageous and brave, no matter who laughs at you or no matter who tells you how horrible what you're how how horribly you're going to fail, yeah, right? or weird or whatever you are for doing it. James Cromwell gets a bee under his bonnet that this pig can herd sheep, and no matter who tells him that it's dumb for him to try. He tries and it works out. He's so dignified in this he's role. Amazing. And it probably helps that he's so tall and his presence is so commanding. But one of the most charming scenes in the film has got to be in probably what you probably the most you hear come out of James Cromwell's mouth is when he's trying to get Babe to drink some milk from a bottle and he just starts singing him a little lullaby. And he gets a little carried away and dances. And so let's start talking about the music here, Jeffrey, because the music also makes this movie. It it starts off, uh, you hear that storybook whimsy, and there's one of the one of the songs that plays throughout is kind of this light and airy. And again, this just made me think of almost a Tim Burton movie, like a Danny Elfman hmm. sort of bouncy, that sort of score. And it, it underlines the storybook element of this as we go from chapter to chapter in this pig's life. Uh, But then the song that, of course, James Cromwell is singing is a version of Organ Symphony No. 5 that's got words to it, but the, the main fanfare... is that recognizable theme, and this is what I think of when I think of Babe. Yeah, absolutely. And... And this version of it is what's playing at the very end. They've just won the sheep herding competition. And it's just such a victorious stand up and cheer moment in a talking pig movie. Yeah. (laughs) And I think you're right to say that you can't just write this off as a kid's movie or a talking pig movie. There's so much more at play here. Although, having said all of that, there's certainly so much here for kids to love and enjoy. You're talking about how the film just goes on chapter to chapter, and the not the narrator of the film, but the uh, the chapter buffers <laughs> are these three little mice who squeak out the uh, the name of each chapter, and occasionally will break out into song themselves. Yep, and. Uh, I don't care. That's another thing where, Cole, I don't care how, what your age is, uh, little, those little chipmunk or mouse voices, you know, going at super rapid pace, it's always funny. Ugh. So, okay, let me get this off my chest really quick because I talked about high concepts when we talked about Dave and, and I slipped. It's so easy to do, but just referring to this as the talking pig movie. Unfortunately, Babe was very successful. I think if it had flown under the radar a little bit, it'd be easier to look back with a lot of nostalgia. But because it was nominated for Best Picture and because it made a ton at the box office, you know, because it's a really good movie, when people talked about it for Best Picture, it was just the talking pig movie that was G-rated that went against all of these actual juggernauts that people thought were more deserving of that accolade. And that's a fall that some of these high concepts fall into, you know, The Shape of Water, which was my favorite movie uh, up for the Oscar a few years ago, was just, 
the Weird Fish Monster movie and, you know, Birdman a few years before that and, and 1917 just last year were just the one-take movie. You know, just because you implement a shtick, just because there's a way to simplify it doesn't mean it wasn't a really cool thing to do in the movie. I would have much rather this be known as the really whimsical storybooky movie with farm animals. Um, you know, and, and they use that storybook. You, you also just mentioned like the, the little chapter titles. And <laughs> and my my favorite version of humor is where either what you see and what you hear are totally different things or you see something and then you hear exactly that. And so every chapter title will be something like pigs are definitely stupid in those like mice voices. <laughs> and then during the course of the chapter, one of the characters will say exactly stupid, the chapter Mom. title. Not as stupid as sheep, mind you, but pigs are definitely stupid. Excuse me. No, we're not. Good heavens. Who are you? I'm a large white. Yes, that's your breed, dear. What's your name? I don't know. Well, what did your mother call you to tell you apart from your brothers and sisters? Our mom called us all the same. And what was that, dear? She she called us all babe. That's babe talking to the the nice female dog that would eventually fill like a motherly role for him where you can tell like all the animals on this farm just kind of feel one way, right? Things are the way that they are. And babe just kind of innocently pops up like, no, we're not. <laughs> and it takes everyone off guard. And the way he just approaches life is so fresh and inspiring. By the way, the voice of Babe is Christine Cavanaugh. And um, you might recognize her as Chucky from Rugrats. She was also on Darkwing Duck. No, those are older shows, granted. I mean, in the 90s, that was a pretty murderous row of awesomeness. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm surprised we haven't made the the connection to Mad Max, Cole. Yeah, so this was filmed in (laughs) Australia, and George Miller was indeed a producer. There was a little bit of friction, apparently, between George Miller and Chris Noonan, the director, um, where Miller felt like... He presented this concept like ready-made and Noonan just kind of had to shoot it. And Noonan felt like his role kept being underplayed, like he brought a lot to this movie. I don't know. I was not there. Whoever it was, though, that came up with the concept and all of the frills around this movie did an amazing job. Because, again, it's not just a talking pig movie where he, you know, goes through a story. It's so stylized the way they do it. We've we've talked about Pushing Daisies before on oh, the yeah. show. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite TV shows because I really am just a sucker for that, you know, color palette, like washed out, just storybook whimsy way of presenting a story in a different way. And it, it works with Babe because, again, he is that kind of a character. Or she is that kind of a character that sees the world differently. And, I think it's a like he it's a voiced by a she. New thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not only did he produce the film, uh, uh, George Miller, but he co-wrote the screenplay with Chris Noonan. And Chris Noonan got nominated for Best Director. Because so there's no he award was a, for Best Producer. He was Well, there's <laughs> Best Picture is basically the Best Producer Award. And it got right? that nomination, too. Um, and it, it was based on a book called The Sheep Pig. Absolutely it was. Which I have not read. I've mentioned it being inspiring. It also crops up on the AFI's 100 Years, 100 Cheers list. Really? The most inspiring movies of all time. And which is 
it's almost a shame then as as popular and as successful as this movie was it made like 250 million dollars they made a sequel babe pig in the city which just came out 3 years later that totally bombed totally bombed yeah they the people in universal say that that is one of the two worst movies that they have ever made like multiple sources it, it was definitely a disappointment i've never even seen it because i want to view just the story of babe as a one thing but anytime you have like a kid's property that is moderately successful it just ends up spawning sequels it, it didn't have to. It we lost, don't have to talk about that. It lost a ton of money, but I will say, Cole, Siskel and Ebert both gave it two thumbs up, and they prefer Babe, Pig in the City to Babe, the original. I don't trust that. I don't believe it, and I'm probably not going to test that theory because I still don't I don't want to watch it. I don't. It's something different, right? It does seem like a film that should be left alone, right? And why, why try to to uh, have lightning strike twice in a bottle. Right. I butchered that saying, but you caught the essence of what I, I was saying. And I think saying. it is George Miller that ends up directing that the sequel. second one. Yeah, mm-hmm. yep. And you can tell, as speaking of the style, it's it's very much a George Miller style <laughs> in the second one. Yep. Uh, that's, that's what I got. I got some quotes from the movie, if we want to tackle those next. I think I know at least one of them that you're going to do. I, I'm holding that for last. Okay. Don't worry. But uh, we've mentioned the duck Ferdinand that jumps around. One of the scenes takes place at Christmas, and, and it's another one of the little moments, right? James Cromwell early on uh, is painting this beautiful dollhouse, and he's hand crafting it and you know when we we zoom into the house for the first time we actually see it through the dollhouse first and then it pulls back so again when we're first introduced to the farm it's this more stylized version of the farm it's it's this microcosm of it Uh, eventually he gives the dollhouse to this little girl who complains that it's not the one that she wanted because it wasn't the one on tv even though this is a beautiful like work of passion from james cromwell anyway christmas for the animals means something entirely different oh yeah (laughs) because of christmas dinner they call it christmas 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 dinner, yeah. Dinner means death. Death means carnage. Christmas means carnage! Christmas means carnage! (laughs) Christmas means carnage. I forgot about that one. The narrator often gives really poignant observations through this throughout the whole story. And one of my other favorite quotes is as Farmer Hoggett is holding Babe for the first time, right after he relieves himself to, you know, lose a couple ounces on the guess your weight of the pig scene. Uh, the narrator it just looks at him. The camera pans back and forth saying something passed at that time between the farmer and the pig um, <laughs> where they realized that they were in for something bigger. And that's. That's setting up their story, their relationship. Yeah. As Farmer Hoggett learns something new about himself and everyone that he interacts with. And then, of course, if we're talking about James Cromwell quotes from this movie, the one that we have to end on and the one that is just the perfect encapsulation of him as a character and he and the pig's relationship is his affirmation of Babe. It's the quote that you've been waiting for. And so that's how we end our conversation about Babe. When we come back, we will be putting a final wrap on both Dave and Babe. And of course, panning for good. This is Screen Cleaning. And though every single human in the stands or in the commentary boxes was at a complete loss for words. The man who in his life had uttered fewer words than any of them 
knew exactly what to say. That little pig. That'll do. mice that you were talking about, Jeff. Oh, I loved them. As a 12-year-old, I loved them, and I still love them to this day. We've gotten, like, an an Irish jig version of this song. We've gotten the fanfare, bombastic version, and here's the kind of Calypso version of (laughs) If I Had Words. Oh, my goodness, Cole. I think what's so great about both of these films is that they're both films that you're rooting for the underdog. Um, You... You just leave the film feeling inspired, feeling on cloud nine, and just ready to go out and conquer the world. That's how I feel watching these two movies anyway. Yeah, you're lifted up, and that's what we try to do here on Screen Cleaning. So especially for this edition of our Hall of Fame, uh, that's what we tried to do with our picks of Dave and Babe. Before we end, uh, one of the questions that I try to always ask in the two times that I've always done this show is, uh, would the sequel be better with The Rock? Jeff, would you like to see, and you mentioned, you spoiled my thunder mentioning Babe Babe, Pig in the City, a movie that I haven't seen nor have any desire to, but maybe if I had The Rock, would I? (laughs) I think you absolutely would, because most of his movies are really worth seeing. Yeah, and we ask because we noticed a trend uh, that every sequel that adds The Rock ends up being better than the the previous one. So you've got G.I. Joe and you've got Jumanji. When he came into Fast Five, that's when those Fast and Furious movies start getting better. What about Dave with The Rock, Jeff? Do you think uh, you'd like that one? I think I would. Um, I think he could pull it off. He's likable. He's certainly got the likable factor to him. Um And I think based on his wrestling career, he could play kind of a bad boy or the bad guy side of the president of the United States. And on Saturday Night Live, we've seen him as the president, kind of, because in a spoof, he when uh, Barack Obama gets angry, he becomes the Rock Obama. And uh, I can see it, Cole. I can really see it. I think he's got the charm to pull it off. See, I got really invested in thinking about this last night when I couldn't go to sleep. And I have a whole pitch for Dave 2. So here's here's my idea of okay. Dave 2 starring The Rock. So uh, you have The Rock. He's the president of the United States. And there's an assassination attempt on his life. Mm-hmm. And so the... The captain of the Secret Service, Ving Rames, brings everyone together and says, hey, I remember when I was just a, an average agent. We had this idea of bringing in someone that looks like the president, an impersonator, and it worked really well whenever he's in really public situations. You know, maybe we hide the real president and have this impersonator. So they bring in a bunch of the rock impersonators uh, and you have that scene where they're at a desk and everyone, you know, quick 
comes in kind of like a Mystery Men or Deadpool 2 where they're all sure. auditioning for it. Uh, one of the rock impersonators is going to be Vin Diesel just because I know they have beef and I think that would be hilarious. <laughs> and so eventually they all go through and then they kind of look down the line and, man, you know, they're all disappointed. No one really is perfect for it yet. And then the little intern at the end of the table says, but wait, there's one more candidate. And in walks Kevin Hart, who just starts quoting a line from probably Central Intelligence or some other movie that they were both in, just exactly like Kevin Hart would, not trying to be the rock at all. And some generic bad guy, you know, a Ben Mendelsohn or Walton Goggins or something, stands up and Mm. starts clapping. He's like, that's our impersonator. And everyone else looks at him like he's crazy because he is. And Kevin Hart looks nothing like The Rock. Sure. That's that's always hilarious when there's one really big guy and one really small guy. Turns out it's it's that bad guy that's been trying to kill the president. And so his plan Ah. is to kind of... Insert this wild card, you know, character. Eventually, Kevin Hart and The Rock, like like they always do, they become best friends and they develop a great relationship. There's another attempt on The Rock's life, and this time they get him, and they're like, "Oh, we need like a blood transfusion. He's losing a lot of blood." It turns out Kevin Hart is a an acceptable donor. <laughs> they were brothers the whole time. In the big twist, not only do you have a sequel to one Ivan Reitman film dave you have a remake of twins Mm. another ivan reitman movie this is dave Two: a second term starring the rock and kevin hart cole you've really given this some thought this sounds like maybe you've even officially pitched it to warner brothers i just officially pitched it to you okay and everyone listening you you do know that uh there was supposed to be a sequel to the movie twins called triplets where eddie murphy (laughs) is the third person that that would be amazing yeah i feel like whenever you were mentioning ivan reitman's other movies you glazed over his period where schwarzenegger was in everything and schwarzenegger makes a cameo in dave he does that's right um, I will say, as much as I've been enjoying uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson's films, maybe I'm kind of ready for him to have that Arnold Schwarzenegger phase in his career where he plays, you know, um, where he plays straighter roles that are not in these big action movies but are just more comedic or more humble roles, you know? Maybe yeah. I'm ready for that. Yeah, that's that's the next where step. Where he's trying to get his kid a, a coveted toy at Christmas and jingle <laughs> all the way. So and instead then, of fighting bad guys, he's fighting Santa impersonators. Kindergarten you know? Cop was also an Ivan Reitman movie with... But he was a cop in that, so yeah. Okay, now what about Babe? How could you possibly cast... Dwayne The Rock Johnson in a Babe sequel. Uh, He's the voice of, let's see, what would be a The Rock-looking animal? Uh, A gorilla. So Babe 3, right, Babe is still in the city and he stumbles into, like, the New York City Zoo and The Rock is there and they all, he tries to break out the animals because another theme of Babe that's underrated is it's kind of frowning down on industrial use of meat and, and the way we treat animals. Yeah. And so maybe Babe Babe goes into the zoo and tries to break him out, and the rock is one of the animals that's in there. That that kind of side of Babe actually leads into our panning for good for the day. There's good in them there hills. During the filming of Babe, James Cromwell became a vegetarian because he felt like he couldn't honestly portray 
this character without having that respect in real life for the meat that animals have provided and, and just the the weird and really dirty way that like the industrial complex provides meat you know i as a farmer, he's doing it mostly the right way, like in, in the character. And as someone who grew up on a couple farms myself, like both my grandparents own farms, I love thinking it more that way. Like when we would have deer or meat or cows like back home, I knew who those were and I knew it was treated ethically like up until that point. But the, the meatpacking industry really is a mess. And this film actually led to a decrease in pork consumption in the United States and I think became a seminal film for millennials and for folks growing up in the 90s that led to this mainstream acceptance now of vegetarianism and veganism. Well, Cole, as we wrap up the show here today, I've just got three words to say to you. That'll do, pig. That'll do. Perfect. This is another edition of our Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame. We hope to have another one for you shortly. I love doing this. I love taking a little more time on movies that we don't spend enough time on. So the first time around, it was superheroes and dolls. And the second time around, it's presidents and pigs. Presidents and inspiring pigs. (laughs) Who knows what the next edition of our Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame will contain. But as you know, we are here each and every Saturday on BYU Radio. Don't forget to download the Screen Cleaning Podcast. Just Google Screen Cleaning Podcast and you'll instantly have access to over 100 episodes. Go back and listen to every single one of our shows. Cole, I think I'm going to go home and, and watch me some Babe. Jeff, I'm always just watching movies. It's what we love to do and it's what we love to talk about on the show. That's right. Until next time, I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wissinger. And we'll see you on Screen Cleaning.